Welcome to Podcast Marketing Secrets, the place for entrepreneurs, coaches, and CEOs who are looking to grow their business with a podcast, become a key person of influence in their industry, and get their ideal clients to come to them, also known as Attraction Marketing. I'm your host, Al Morenton. My guest today is Jeff Barnes. Jeff is a former U.S. Navy nuclear power plant operator on a submarine, Navy diver, risk management director, technology enthusiast, business growth expert, advisor, and management consultant. Mr. Barnes sits on the boards of startup companies, runs a venture fund, is the chair of the Veterans Council on C-Suite, and the executive director of a veteran-focused nonprofit. Mr. Barnes has helps businesses develop systems and processes based on military principles to create exponential growth. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me here, Al. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, then thanks for coming on. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your experience working on a nuclear submarine? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, I started that right out of high school. I decided to uh, enlist in the Navy because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And it sounded like a really cool gig at the time, going ahead and traveling the world for free and actually having them pay you for it. And uh, little did I know how much work and effort there would be in there and how little of the world I would actually see being on a submarine, right? Um, you know, I did travel all over the world. I got to go to some amazing places and have a lot of fun with that. But, you know, when you're a nuclear operator, you know, we call them, call ourselves nukes, you don't get a lot of downtime. You end up always in the engine room, always working, things like that. But it did give me a lot of great skills for the rest of my career. Um, going in, you know, especially when you're wet behind the ears, coming out of high school, you think you know everything and, you know, you're ready to take on the world and have all this bravado. And, you don't have the discipline, you don't have the focus, you don't have even the skill set or the expertise or experience to do anything, really. Um, and so I got a lot of that over the six years that I was in the military and just had a great time with it. You know, a lot of it was difficult, challenging, and there were plenty of days that I really regretted my decision to join. But, you know, looking back on it almost 20 years later, I don't have any regrets for joining. And it was quite a bit of fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and I, I can see how that would, you know, really you know, build out your skill set for, you know, for, you know, having business, running business and things like that. That's awesome. So is it, yeah. is it like, is it lonely on a, on a submarine? Oh gosh, no. Um, You don't get away from everybody. You're stuck there. So 130 to 160 people, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, but you're sleeping right next to everybody else. You know, there's no privacy. There's no, no downtime really. You know, you're sleeping, you know, four, if you're lucky, six hours a day and, you know, you're always on call. So there, there's, there's no real way to get away from people. You try to as best you can, you go hide in the bilge or something like that and uh, try to disappear, try to be incognito, if you will, but it doesn't really work out. So um, you definitely learn to appreciate having your own space and your own autonomy after being on a submarine for a long time. You know, some guys really struggled with that and actually they would, uh, you know, they do psyche valves to try and make sure you're going to be a good fit for it. And you'd still find out that there are people that couldn't handle the claustrophobia, couldn't handle the cramped spaces, couldn't handle, you know, not having any downtime and always being on. And so those guys were uh, eventually removed from the boats. But, you know, it's just one of those things that it it is life. And it's really hard for people that have never been on a submarine or experienced military life to relate. But once you're in it, you know, it is just your, your normal, right? You're not used to, or you are, you become used to 
all of the operations, always having to work, always having something to do, not being able to see sunshine, not being able to see the light, not really even being able to have fresh food uh, for weeks on end, but you do get used to it eventually. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, I imagine like all this, there's got to be a ton of standard operating procedures and all kinds of things to, to run one of those. And that and that's key for business too, right? Absolutely. So I ran uh, what's called our quality assurance program on our boat. And my job was to know where the procedures were, to know where everything was. So we had this thing called the quality assurance manual and the entire Navy uses it. And we were constantly finding things in that manual that were either wrong or outdated or needed to be updated and things like that. And the QA manual was actually just the, the first manual you look at in where to find a procedure to do a thing, right? Or where to go. And then the Navy has manuals for the manuals, right? We had everything going. So we had our reactor plant manuals that are, I don't know, 10, 13 volumes deep. And there's just so much information in there. And one of the things that I learned early on is that even though they try to get you memorized and regurgitate information, there's only a small fraction of information that you're ever going to need to know at a moment's notice. Everything else, you need to know where to find the information. And I'd say that is really key for a lot of businesses as well, is that most entrepreneurs, most CEOs, founders, and these people, they pride themselves on knowing everything. But the problem with knowing everything is that no one else may know what needs to be done or how to do it. And so if it's not turned into some sort of format where other people can get that information, whether that's a video or an audio or a written manual or digital manual, it doesn't really matter. If no one else can find that information, it means you are stuck as the holder of all the keys. And when you're young or when you're inexperienced, you think that's a great thing. Like everybody comes to me. And then eventually you get to the point where everybody comes to you and no one likes that. You don't want to be that person that holds all the answers to all the things because then you are irreplaceable. And if you can't replace yourself inside of a business, if it's especially if it's your business, you will never grow. You will never scale. You'll never exit. You'll never have a chance to enjoy your life because everybody needs you all the time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, I could attest to that, you know, myself, you know, because I've been in business my whole life. And, um, you know, when I was younger, I had all that energy. But now that I'm older and, you know, and I was getting to this point you know, as business was growing where people like we're always coming to me, you know, like, why is everybody always coming to me? Like, like, why, why can't they just do things on their own? It's because they don't have a, an actual procedure to refer back to and all these things. So um, I've uh, just recently gotten really good at, at, you know, making standard operating procedures and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you make the transition like from like, you know, submarine operator to, you know, corporate world? Yeah, it was an interesting transition. A lot of people, I guess, struggle with that. I did not. Um, I got so bored when I got out. I was planning on taking three months off, traveling, enjoying myself. Mm -hmm. And two weeks later, I had a job because I ended up getting so bored hanging out by the pool in the sunshine. I know that sounds weird. Um, but yeah, I'm just one of those guys that likes to get stuff done and do things. So I ended up getting a referral from one of my buddies who'd already gotten out to go become a boiler inspector of all things. I didn't even know what a boiler was. Turns out a boiler is just a, a steam generator, which we used that uses fire of some kind or electricity. We used nuclear power. So it was a pretty simple transition for me. But the thing that I loved about that job was the autonomy. I went from being on a submarine where, you know, you have racks, you know, we don't call them beds, we call them racks. And so you have racks stacked stack three deep and, you know, you're sleeping if you're on the top rack, which I always wanted to be, 
you have two people right below you, you have three more guys right next to you and you're inundated and surrounded by people all the time and everything that comes along with that. Right. Well, I didn't want that anymore. I did not want to be in a cubicle. I did not want to work in a nuclear power plant anymore. And I did not want rotating shift work, which is what most of the jobs were available for guys like me. And so I found this job. And what I loved about it was that I could have the autonomy. I could work from home. So I've been working from home for almost 18 years now. And I had my own office. I had a corporate car, a corporate laptop, all this other stuff. And then I just traveled. So I got a couple of things I really love, which was the travel and the autonomy. And that was really important for me to get into that because I would have hated life otherwise. I mean, I, I realized I did not like being in, having somebody else in control of my time and my life 24, 7, 365. So transitioning to something like that, that allowed me to have this incredible opportunity was really simple for me. And all it meant that I had to do was do a good job. So I kept this and that was great. And that worked out really well for maybe a year or two. And then I got bored again. <laughs> so I ended up asking for and eventually getting in several promotions. By the time I left that company 12 years later, I was in charge of the technology division. I was you know, running international projects. And we were raising capital. We we're doing all that sort of stuff. And so I think it was a little bit of my mentality. There was the discipline that came from the Navy. There was the ability to see a project through to completion and getting great results was important. And of course, all of the operating procedures along the way and learning a little bit about leadership, a little bit about management in the military definitely helped. Um, but I would say that the transition for me was actually fairly simple because I, I wanted that autonomy and I found it. That's awesome. Uh, that's really cool that you were able to find it like sort of like quickly. And it was, just, and it was an actual uh, like referral from a friend kind of a thing too. You know, so it wasn't like this great journey that you went on, you know, you, you found it, you just, you were smart enough to realize, you know, this is my thing right here and, 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 and run with it. And um, so working with that, uh, that corporate position, um, you also learned about like, um, like raising capital and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And along the way, you know, I was, like I said, I was generally a pretty bored guy. I just get bored with things pretty easily. So I'd ended up going and looking for the next new thing, the next shiny object. I think a lot of people when they're younger, 20s, 30s, they probably are doing that still. And I don't think I was any exception. I just happened to get bored faster than most people, right? And the thing that I did not want was I didn't want to work 40 years for some company or multiple companies. And then maybe eventually in my 60s, be able to retire and then go see the world and then have the money to do all the things I want to do. I learned very early on that I wanted to be independent. I wanted my personal autonomy and freedom. And I wanted money. I wanted money in a bad way. So I was always doing side hustles while I worked at that company. I became a financial planner for a little while. I was investing in real estate. And along the way, I learned some really important truths. And one is that building relationships is vitally important. Learning how to sell is a, a master skill and selling anything from your ideas to um, your, your ability to raise capital is sales. It's just a, a different thing. You're selling something that's intangible for a really big amount of money. And I started learning all these things along the way. And then because I was spending time doing that, I ended up getting my MBA as well. I got an opportunity to take over and actually we created a whole new department for this to go um, help the company with innovation, to go out there and find companies that we want to acquire or invest in or partner with. And so I travel all over the world and had people travel all the world to see us. And we ended up doing some pretty phenomenal things. We ended up investing in or acquiring dozens of companies, 
over a billion dollars in capital raised throughout that process. And I got to learn about how much money there really is in the world, what that process is like to raise capital, as well as invest the capital and all of that. So it was a really good time. It was definitely a huge learning experience for sure. That's awesome. That's awesome. And um, yeah, one of the things, one of the things you said there too, is like, you got to understand how much money there actually is in the world, you know, and uh, like there's an actual abundance of it um, once you unlock the right avenues, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and people don't realize this, right? There's $3.7 trillion. That's, that's a lot of zeros, right? I think 15, if I remember correctly, but $3.7 trillion in dry powder, meaning money that is not invested, really. It's sitting there, you know, earning one, 2% or sometimes a negative percentage, depending on what year. And that's just money that's sitting there waiting for great opportunities. When I was working in this corporation, we had $260 billion under management. So even a 1% per year return was $2.6 billion in returns. Like that's phenomenal. That's, an, that's mind boggling to see that. And so Sometimes the the capital markets, they wouldn't write a check unless it was more than $50 million, 50 million, because it was too much energy, too much headache to deal with it, right? That is, it's really hard for people to wrap their minds around that. And of course, when it's a corporation's money, it's really easy to say, oh, well, that's a company's money. And even those people that are managing that amount can't foresee themselves making anywhere close to that. And as a result, there's always this the scarcity mindset that people deal with, even when they're working in those markets, it's really hard for a lot of people to break out of that. Yeah, for sure. And it, it took me it took me a long time, you know. You know, and uh, there it is. One day when I, I remember, I remember the day I was in San Diego, and I just realized it was like, oh my gosh! And then my like my life changed that day. You know, were you right by the yacht club by chance, looking at all the money just floating <laughs> on the water? Like it, it still amazes me, right? You go out there to the marina in San Diego or, you know, any, any nice city and you just see the money sitting there. I see massive amounts of dollars just floating on the water that no one's even using, right? Most yeah. of these people, they park their boat there. They put it in the slip. They see it twice a year at best, right? And we're talking yachts that are worth 20, 30, hundred million dollars. Man, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So um, you mentioned something about like uh, sort of like like uh, forget what the term you use, but like sort of like strategic partners, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, so how do you like like find and qualify strategic partners in, in your field? It's really, you know, it, it's a combination of building your network, understanding business models and use cases for technology and ideas, and then talking to people, right? You know, a really good example, we have clients all the time that are looking for strategic investors. In other words, they bring more than just money. Yeah. They don't want 100K or even 500K. They want 5 million, 10 million, 20 million. And that kind of money isn't, you know, a lot of individuals are not going to go write that kind of check, right? So then you're looking at things like venture capitalists, if they want that. You're looking at uh, strategic corporate venture arms. You're looking at family offices and private equity. And the reason you're looking at those is because one, they have the money, but two, they have the connections, right? And we all know the six degrees of separation, right? You could probably get connected to almost any person on this entire planet through six degrees of, of separation, right? And so if you think about it in those terms, you may not know who to go to directly to find a strategic investor or strategic partner, but you might know somebody that is one or two degrees away from that. That's why LinkedIn is so valuable for a lot of people. I can say, okay, well, I want to 
you know, for example, I'm going to go out there and find somebody who is, you know, building or, or drilling oil wells, because I might have a technology that I think is going to make, you know, finding the oil better, easier, whatever. Well, if that's the case, I may not want to go to just every random angel investor out there to try to get them to invest. I may want to go to the people who are drilling the oil wells. Well, there's even a few other people you might go to. You might go to the people that sell the equipment to the folks who are dr drilling the oil wells. Because in your mind, you know, this thing could help make their job better, more lucrative, more profitable, whatever. And so I might go after those people. Well, then I need to know who in that company or those several companies I can reach out to. And sometimes it's name by position. Sometimes you can go out there and find RFPs, uh, requests for proposals. Corporations and governments will do this all the time. They'll put something out on a internal or external, you know, for lack of a better term, a bulletin board. It says, this is what we're looking for. And there are companies out there that can help you find that. But that's how you go and you start finding these, these strategic investors or strategic partners. Right on. That, that's awesome. Uh, that's really cool. And it's like, um, it's almost like a chess game, you know, it's, 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 it's really, it's really cool. And, um, and it's, it's almost like uh, how you're strategically moving all these pieces and it's, it's a, it's a skill, you know, it's, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a hard, it's a skill. And then there's a lot of trust involved, a lot of different, th different factors involved. And, and on the outside looking in, it seems like you're not doing any work at all, you know, but, but, but there's, but there's just so much strategy and like sales and convincing and all these different things yep. that, that go along with, with it in order to get the, you know, that ball rolling. And, um, there's tons of, you know, revenue that are involved with that, you know, and oh, so many different things. Right. So I'll give you an example, a real world example. Um, we had 250 remote employees that were going around doing what I was doing in the beginning, boiler inspections, but really it was loss control inspections. You're looking at businesses and all this. And 250 employees is hard to manage, right? Mm -hmm. When they're always out in the field and you don't see them, but a couple times a year. And so we had to develop technology that was going to allow our experts back in the home office, you know, the PhD level people that could answer a lot of these really technical questions that our field had. But how do you get how do you get the person that's a thousand, two thousand miles away to be able to answer a question for somebody who's out in, let's just say, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they have a question about something they're looking at, but they don't know how to answer it? Well, the old school traditional model was take a whole bunch of pictures, write up a report, send it back to somebody. Somebody else finally gets to that report. They look at it. You know, long story short, it takes weeks, sometimes months. Sometimes you need an answer like right away. Well, you know, when LTE and 4G came out and then eventually 5G, you could go out there and find technologies. It would allow us to directly communicate. And this is long before Zoom came around, long before all of that stuff. So we didn't have that. So we found companies that were able to, to put together uh, remote visualization tools. And as a result of us doing proof of concept and beta trials with these folks, we would put those tools and those headsets on our staff. And then we would build out the rest of it so that our experts back in home office could see what the person was seeing in the field real time. And as a result, we could then gauge how successful that was going to be. And that's what led to a potential investment, right? And that's what led to that conversation and bringing it over to our board members and our, our strategic corporate venture arm, right? And so it's it's just understanding the use case and understanding the pain points, really. This is like marketing 101. What is the pain point of your ideal client? You know, not what is your solution, not what is your product or your service, what's the pain point? And if you can figure out what the pain point is, you can figure out who has that pain point, then you can figure out how to fill that gap. And so that's a lot of what I was doing and what our 
our strategic arm does. That's awesome. And and that's um and that's just basic sales too, right? You know, you know, whether you're selling you a gym membership people. or anything else, you yep. know, it's 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 crazy, you know, um how it, like like it, it, it all just um no matter what level, it's all it's it's almost all the same when you bre- actually break it down, you know. Yep. It, it, it's really it's really really cool actually, you know. So I was, uh, saw that you have this uh, angel investors network. Mm-hmm. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So AIN has been around since 1997. And what we do is we put investors together with investors and great deals. Or, I mean, investors together with entrepreneurs and great deals. And what we do is we put on these live events. You know, we used to do several times a year. I'd be, you know, 12, 13 events a year. And think about Shark Tank or Dragon's Den for those people in Canada or the UK. So you put a bunch of investors in the room, you put a bunch of great ideas and entrepreneurs up on stage, they pitch and then magic happens. So with that, we've learned, uh, we've spent a lot of time working with both investors and entrepreneurs and founders. And of course, we work with fund managers, we work with real estate investors and people that are buying and selling businesses. You know, we do a lot when it comes to how to structure a deal, how to find a deal, how to vet a deal, how to eventually write the check or make the investment. And then what do you do after that, right? You know, most people forget, I think, that you don't make your money on an, a startup investment until there's a liquidity event down the road, right? Until there's an exit, until something else happens. It's not like you're going to get paid monthly distributions from a company that doesn't have monthly distributions to give. So instead, you have to figure out how to structure the deal in the right way and then make an informed decision. If you're going to put in money, can I wait five, 10 years sometimes to get that money back? And hopefully I do, right? And then within AIN, we also bring together cash flowing opportunities, real estate investments, you know, private equity kind of deals so that people can get those distributions along the way. But what it comes down to, again, is building up that network, right? So having a group of people that I'm not an expert in all things, but if I have an opportunity to invest in, let's just say a, a biotech device, well, I'm probably going to want somebody inside of my network to do the due diligence on that and tell us if it's going to be a legitimate investment or not. And that's how that whole thing works out. So we do leverage that strategic and network effect as well to inside of our all, all of our deals. That's awesome. That's really cool. And it's cool, it's cool that you also like provide other kinds of investments that people could see a return on quicker, you know, mm-hmm. allowing them to invest in the longer term you know, you know, um, deals kind of, you know, kind of a thing. Um, so, uh, how do you get people like involved with, with your, with that network? So, you know, obviously we have our website and people come there all the time. We get 10 to 20 new, um, pitches every single day from entrepreneurs. Uh, so that's just happening naturally and organically, but then doing our live events is really where it comes in is that, you know, when it comes to investing, it, I'm not saying it can't happen or doesn't happen, but people like to press the flesh. They like to see somebody face to face and shake their hands and and get a chance to know them. It's really hard to do on a webinar. It's really hard to do via email or video sales letters and all of that. So we do these live events as a way to bring in people so that they can see these deals. They can meet each other. They can hash it out. And then we have you know, our members get to, to you know, essentially network within their own little circle and say, hey, what deal do you have? What are you working on? What am I working on? Hey, I need help with this thing. I'm looking for other investors who want to come to this deal with me, right? So it's a matter of going out there, being seen, 
and then just getting people to show up at our events. And then once they see us at our events, they're really excited to do, go on to the next stage, which is just be part of the, the membership. That's awesome. And um, so with the, with the entrepreneurs that you like, like you, you know, you, you find that um, they, they seem, you know, like worthwhile, you know, working with, um, do you help them with, with if, if they're newer to that kind of a process? Yeah, absolutely. So if somebody wants to come and pitch at our events, we'll coach them on their pitch deck, their presentation, how to even speak to investors, right? Not to mention what are the deal terms? How do they help? How do they structure their deal in a certain way? And I actually just got off the phone with one of our folks who was at a previous event just a little over a month ago. And they said, honestly, we haven't been able to stop um, ever since then, because just from that one event, they're getting all sorts of different opportunities and, and things coming out of that by just being present, by showing up and giving that presentation. So we help them all the way through that. So now they know, okay, we have opportunities. Now it's not a matter of where's the opportunity, it's which opportunity do we want to go after. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, having choices like that is is, is always cool because you could, um, you know, you know, find out what's, be what's best for you, basically. That being said, um, like, like for for companies that actually want to scale and grow, you know, into you know the multi, you know, whatever, you know, eight nine figures, whatever. Um, the do you recommend uh, getting investment and uh, you know like strategic partnerships and stuff like that uh, to scale faster? That really depends on the business, right? Um, and it depends on how good they are at marketing and sales. So companies that are good at marketing and sales don't necessarily need to raise a lot of capital. However, there are companies that are very either R&D or hardware and capital intensive, right? So if you look at Tesla, when when Musk launched Tesla, and I think it was the Model S, he what did he do? He did a pre-sale for the Model S. And I don't remember the number of you know, people that he got to put $1,000 down, but it was a lot, right? Well, that money can then go towards building up the, the infrastructure to deliver that. As long as everybody knows, hey, you're not getting this for six months, 12 months, two years, who knows? Um, so that's one way. That's essentially crowdfunding, right? Or crowdsourcing in some cases. But other companies that are not great at you know sales and marketing and they need a bigger team around them to help make it happen or they need to do more R&D or they're waiting for patents to get through or whatever it might be, they might need to raise capital. And if they do need to raise capital, what we strongly encourage them to do is raise as little as possible to get to the next stage. And that means whether you are, you know, pre-revenue napkin stage company, you need enough to get to like proof of concept, right? Does the product service technology, whatever I'm building, does it actually have a need in the marketplace? Can I prove that people want this? And if you can do that, then the next stage is to start getting more traction. Okay. Are we getting sales? We're we getting customers. We're we getting users. And the companies that struggle the most are the ones that give up too much equity to early on. They raise, some of them will raise way too much money early on without a strategic plan on how to spend that money. And as a result, you'll see companies that will raise $100 million and be out of business 12 months later. Why? Because they didn't have the maturity, the advisors, the people on their team to help them spend it properly, or they didn't have a plan at all, or they hadn't even proven that there was an actual need in the marketplace for what they were doing. So Yes, we actually, we advise and we help them with that. Then if there's a company that is looking to scale up and they really want to hit that eight, nine, 10 figure valuation, what does it take? Well, it takes 
rapid growth, right? And what VCs want to see, generally speaking, is 300% year-over-year growth with a million-dollar ARR. And then they will start getting invest- interested and they'll want to put more you know, fuel on the fire, for lack of a better term. But not all companies need that, right? You don't necessarily need to have a 300% year-over-year growth and a $100 million investment to make that happen. You can go and do effective sales marketing strategies and grow organically. And I think that's generally a better way for most companies to grow is organically without a lot of capital infusion, even though it's harder, it's slower. It's not a lot of fun for some people. It's very stressful, but then you retain control of your company and you know what the market's looking for, right? The, The pressure that comes with a big amount of capital is intense, right? And you end up start putting people on your board and into your company that maybe you don't know, like, or doesn't have don't have the same values as you, and so it makes it a little bit challenge, more challenging. However, like I said, you know everybody has their own opinion, their their desires on how they want to grow. And if somebody's been through this and down this path before, and they've had a couple of successful exits, and they have somebody dangling a twenty million dollar check to scale this thing up rapidly, go for it, right? But just realize that it takes a lot of time for a lot of people that have never done this to go out there and find the capital. So, would you rather spend your time looking for the capital? Or would you rather spend your time developing your business, developing your sales and marketing and scaling the business organically? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And um, yeah. And for like uh, smaller entrepreneurs, you you know, like smaller companies that are are just getting traction and stuff like that, it could be confusing for them too, you you know, like, like, like which, which, which way to go, you know, and, and the, the funding always seems attractive to people, but um I've seen a lot of people get hurt, like you were saying, like they get take too much money up front and they were out of business like less than a year later because of different things or they didn't uh, get support. You know, they just got money, you know, and all, all this kind of stuff. There was no, like you said, like that, that strategic kind of thing going on um, wasn't there. And when, like when my company was younger, uh, there was like a boom going on about six or seven years ago. And, uh, there was, I, I was doing a lot of talks and getting a lot of people to, wanting to invest in my company, like, just like, you know, like, like literally had me these cards and this and that, and we want to invest and have meetings and this and that. And I, and I always told them no, you know, cause like, uh, first off I said, well, like, what can you do to help me, you know, besides money? And they never had a really good answer, you know, for that, you know, and, and I didn't need just money, you know, I, I, right. I needed like you know, like advice on how to grow and scale properly, you know, at each stage. And, you know, because there's different stages and phases of a business and, and no, and nobody really had that. So I always just shied away from it. And a lot of people that I know that have businesses that are similar to mine that took the investment, they're not in business anymore. And I, and I still am. So I I don't know if it was good or bad that I did that, but, um, you know, well, I, it I, teaches you a lot, right? It, it's really difficult to know where your business is going to be in three, five, 10 years mm-hmm. for anybody, right? We all have an idea where we want to be, but we have all heard the term pivot and that happens. Now, the problem is that, the, again, it's the pressure that comes with the money that makes people do foolish things, right? And a, a VC puts in $20 million, $100 million, right? They're going to expect a return. Like, there's a company out there, Thrasio. Thrasio was a roll-up company bringing in Amazon e-commerce businesses. And we looked at this model very, very heavily, you know, buying a bunch. In fact, we actually still do this, but you buy a bunch of companies, you roll them all up. And now you go from 
100, $1 million per year companies to a $100 million per year company. Well, the multiple on that is great if you can make it work, right? If you can align the operating systems, the marketing system, the sales systems, if you can consolidate, if you can leverage economies of scale, then it's great. Thrasio raised $3 billion to do this. One of the largest aggregators of all time that did this raised a lot of money. And about a month, month and a half ago, they filed for bankruptcy, right? Now, that happened in a very short period of time. I'm talking like 2020 to 2023. Raised $3 billion, now filing for bankruptcy. That's a huge issue. And, and again, it comes down to there's a lot of pressure on that capital because, hey, I've invested a lot of money with you guys. When am I going to see traction or a return or something? And so management might make short side decisions. They might make hasty decisions. They might not know what decision to make, but they make one anyway because, well, I need to. And so capital brings a lot of pressure with it. And if somebody doesn't really know what their business is before they take that capital, they're in a lot more trouble than they think. Right on. Yeah, I, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so um, as far as the far as like your business um, and, and the, the way you market and this stuff, how does podcasting fit into that? Yeah, well, just like you said in your intro and in your your very beginning, it's 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 brand recognition, right? It's credibility building. It is when a company comes and they're like, "Hey, I want to raise money." Great. Who knows about you? Oh, no one knows about you. Um, okay, well, how does your you know do you have product market fit? Do you have an MVP? Do you have you know proof of concept? Do you have anything to show that this is going to work in the marketplace? Well, we kind of have an idea, right? And it's. If, if somebody wants to invest in a company, they want to see that it's a real company, that it's it's actually out there. They want to know that the person they're investing in, because it's not just the product or technology, it's also the management team. We want to know that the management team has the credibility, the experience, the expertise to do it. Podcasting is a big part of that, right? Because if I have a new technology or a new product or something that I want to bring to market and no one's ever heard of it, no one's ever seen it, it's a lot harder to raise the capital. It's a lot harder to scale a company. On the other hand, if I'm bringing a product to market and I've been on 30, 40, 50 different shows in the last couple of months, then you're starting to get that traction, that brand recognition. People are going to start seeing you. You can point people to that. Like, look, we had this press release. We had this podcast. We were on this show. You know, we got these kudos from these people. You know, podcast hosts can give great feedback and a podcast host has their own tribe, right? And so let's just say, for example, you went on a really big, you know, prominent podcast and the podcast host is like, oh man, that sounds like a great idea. Let's talk. I want to I want to look more into this. If he says that or she says that on a podcast, that's like an indication to the listeners, hey, I should listen, look at this too, right? So it's a lot of the, the credibility, the brand building, the awareness. And then of course, there's always backlinks, which is great for SEO too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. All, all of that stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's why I love, I love podcasts on both sides, on both sides to hosting and and guesting. Um, so is there like a, one big idea or takeaway that people should take from this episode? Yeah, I would say that the most important thing, you know, based on what we've talked about today is getting clarity, getting absolute clarity on where you want to go, what you want to do, who you want to serve, how you want to serve them. Right. And then the clarity of. What's the problem you're solving? Too many entrepreneurs come at us with a solution-oriented approach. And that solution is half-baked. 
It's because, oh, I had this issue. So obviously everybody else does. That's not true, right? You could be such an extreme minority that there's no market out there. On the other hand, it could be such a broad and vague problem that no one's going to really see the value in you solving that because it's so vague, right? So I would say clarity and figuring out what you want to do, where you want to go and how you want to do it is vital to your long-term success. Yeah, that's huge. That that's that's uh, you know, like people will, like I want to um, you know, like like uh, like really focus on that. Like that's I, I see so many business owners like they'll put like so much time and you know months and years and then like hours you know in the day and everything to to build out this product that they never tested and nobody actually wants. Right. You know. And uh, and um, they just like wasted all, all this time and money and, you know, mortgaging their house and all this kind of stuff. So so that is so crucial to to have that clarity, as you said, you know, so. Um, well, thank you for coming on the show, sharing your insights with us. What's the best way for people to like follow you, get a hold of you, et cetera? Yeah, best places you go check out angelinvestorsnetwork.com. And then I'm on LinkedIn. That's the main platform that I'm on. Um, and it's just Jeff P Barnes is my, my handle there. But yeah, if you go to angelinvestorsnetwork.com, that's where you'll be able to find a little bit more about me. Awesome. Awesome. And we'll be sure to include all your links in the show notes for the video and audio as well. All right. And thanks again for coming on the show. Al, appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So that concludes this episode of Podcast Marketing Secrets. This is Al Morenton signing off. I hope you have a successful day.